0: Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly, Sunday Morning Messages.
1: Today, Steve Osawa continues the series of messages on the miracles of Jesus, today looking at Jesus' command over the natural order. And now, here's Steve. Yet not I, but to Christ in me. Good morning, Thank you, Dave and Becky and Hannah and Stan for just turning our attention and just bringing us to the throne of grace, pointing us back to Jesus, reminding us of his incredible love, his goodness, and the love that sent him to the cross for us, to redeem us. It's so amazing. Last week... Ted Bendel spoke on one of the ways Jesus demonstrated his control over a force of nature, how he calmed a storm. The disciples noted that even the wind and the waves obey him. This morning, we're going fishing. And we're going to look at his control over another aspect of nature, namely fish. Not only can he control the waters, but he controls the animals in the waters. So we're going to take a look at quick look at three times when Jesus helped the disciples catch fish. And these miracles are found in Luke chapter 5, 1 to 11. Um, it's also referenced in Matthew 4 and Mark 1, but we'll look at uh, the account in Luke 5. In Matthew 17, verses 24 to 27, and in John 21, verses 1 to 14. and uh, Apologize, I don't have slides this morning, so you're going to have to just follow along in your Bibles. Uh, I don't know if I should admit this or not. I will. Uh, I was uh, proofreading my sermon, and I fell asleep. And that's normally at the time I'd be putting my slides together. So, uh, unfortunately, no slides this morning. Sorry. (laughs) Now, just because I fell asleep, it doesn't mean that you guys get to fall asleep uh, as I deliver the sermon. So, in a nutshell, what's the big idea? If, you, if I wrote an abstract for this, what is it all about? Well, the miracles demonstrate Jesus' control over nature. And they point us to Jesus and show how we should react when we have options or different challenges in life. And what we see is, despite the fact that the miracle is about fish, Jesus is more concerned about people than he is about fish. Before we begin, begin, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just pause and just thank you again for your love and your goodness and marvel that the God who created everything we can see created ones like us. And despite our sin, sinfulness and our shortcoming, loved us so much that he sent Jesus to die on our behalf. And it's just so amazing. Father, we do thank you for your word, and I just pray that you would guide us through your spirit, pray that you would guide my words, that you would open our hearts and our minds to what you would have us learn today, and may we just all draw closer to you, and in doing so, may you receive the honor and glory, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So, the first passage is found in Luke chapter 5. In Luke chapter 5, before we get to that, I think Peter already knew Jesus and had interacted with him prior to this account that we're going to read. In John's gospel, we learn that Andrew and another one of John the Baptist's disciples, possibly John, met with Jesus after John the Baptist said that Jesus is the Lamb of God. So then Andrew goes and gets his brother Simon and brings him to Jesus And Jesus calls him Cephas, which is translated to Peter. And although the gospel accounts have different foci to them and therefore record the events in different orders, uh, it's interesting to note that Luke records the time that Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law of fever before he notes the catch of fish that we're going to look at. So reading from Luke chapter 5, verse 1. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked them to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and talked to people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Hmm. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid, for from now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Now the Lake of Gennesaret is generally what is the one that we generally refer to as the Sea of Galilee. Uh, later on, we'll see in John's Gospel, that's also referred to as the Sea of Tiberias. And in the Old Testament, was the Sea of Tinnereth. And much of Jesus' ministry was done in this area. Now, apparently fishing was done at night using torches. I guess it would help them navigate. And it's likely that they also used the torches to help attract the fish to the sur- towards the surface. The fish would be counted, sorted, and distributed among the workers, and then sold in the marketplace in the morning. Matthew and Mark's Gospels note that the disciples were casting their nets into the lake, which would have been done when they were washing the nets after the evening's fishing. So Jesus gets into Simon Peter's boat, so he can use it as a platform to teach from, a good way to get a little distance from the crowd so that he can speak to more people. Personally, I find it challenging enough to speak from a pulpit like this, I kind of It holds me up and gives me a spot to keep my notes. I guess Jesus didn't need a a lot of notes, though. When Jesus tells Simon to head out to deep water and let down the nets, what does Simon call him? He says, Master, and agrees to do it because Jesus said so. And in calling him Master, Peter notes that Jesus is in charge. He's the teacher, Peter's the pupil. It must have been strange to Peter, though, that because he and his partners they were experienced fishermen. They knew the lake, they knew how to do the fishing. And here comes Jesus says, well, "Go out and let your net go into the deep and let your nets out." Like, they were the pros, and I don't think Peter rolled his eyes as he said, "Let the nets down." Like, oh yeah, yeah, okay. Jesus said, so we'll do it. It is clear, though, none of them expected what was about to happen. So Jesus fills the nets to the point where both boats start to sink. How's that for a fish finder? Peter ignores the fact that the boats are sinking. He doesn't get excited about how much money they're going to make at market. He just got a glimpse of who Jesus really is, and he realizes his stature, his status, in relation to that of Jesus, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And Jesus tells him not to be afraid, and he invites Peter to follow him, and he gives him a new vocation, a new life. And we also note that James and John leave their father. The next passage we're going to look at is found in Matthew 17. Verses 24 to 27. It's the temple tax. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and you will open it, when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Now the temple tax likely came from the requirement in Exodus thirty. When the Lord told Moses to collect half a shekel, it was as a ransom for their lives, from all the males who were 20 years or older. When he did, and he did this when he took a census of the people. The temple tax, though, had become an annual thing. And the funds were used to pay for the operation of the temple. Now remember, the temple was the house of the Lord, right? It was the place where people went to offer their sacrifices is the place where people went to worship. And in that house of the Lord was the Ark of the Covenant, was Aaron's staff and other sacred objects. When you look at it, to me anyway, it's kind of interesting to note that the tax collector, or the collectors of the temple tax approached Peter, not Jesus. Now, many of the Jewish people felt that paying this tax was a patriotic duty and they actively sought those who were in arrears of payment. They were probably at Peter's house at the time, so maybe one of the reasons they approached Peter, and maybe it's possible that protocol prevented them from going to the teacher. Peter answers for Jesus, though, and then Jesus, as he often does, uses it as a teaching opportunity. Jesus noted that the kings don't tax or charge taxes or tolls from their sons. And then the first thing Jesus notes is, well, but wait, the temple is God's house. If the sons don't pay taxes, he's the son of God, therefore, he's exempt, right? The second thing he notes, though, is interesting. Yeah, I'm exempt, but you know what? Just so we won't offend them, would pay the tax. He, Jesus was willing to submit to the authorities even though he shouldn't have been required to pay It wasn't the right time to pick that fight. The people would have enough more opportunities soon enough to know that Jesus was the Son of God. Only one little problem. They didn't have any money to pay the tax. They couldn't write an IOU. They couldn't... Tap the debit card. They couldn't send any transfer. So Jesus tells Peter to go fish. Hmm. And Peter obeys, and Jesus performs another miracle. And this wasn't just some wild fishing tale. It wasn't just a series of coincidences that somebody dropped the coin, that the fish had the coin in his mouth, and that Peter caught said fish. No coincidence. And neither was it a coincidence that the coin was just the right amount to pay the temple tax for both Jesus and for Peter. Jesus can control nature, and we know that, and we see that again here. And no, this was not the first Bitcoin. So, (laughs) and and no, they're not all good ones either. Earlier, uh, Phil Donaldson, who was initially going to be speaking today, had reached out when I was preparing this message, and one of the things that he had noted was that, you know, Peter himself was a great catch for Jesus. It wasn't about the fish, it was about the people. So the third passage we'll look at is found in John chapter 21, verses 1 to 11. It takes place after Jesus was crucified, died, and rose again the celebration of Passover has ended and the disciples have left Jerusalem and gone back to Galilee. John 21, starting at verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. Remember, this was another name for the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Canaan Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, And two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, if you read commentators, they seem very mixed on Peter's decision to go fishing. Some note that he was being impatient again. He's being Peter, right? He's being impetuous. Even untrusting that he should have been waiting for Jesus. While others note, he needed to eat and it made sense for him to go fishing. Unlike those who are happy to go fishing just to enjoy nature and, you know, if you catch a few fish, that's a bonus. Peter wasn't going out just to have a relaxing time on the lake. He wasn't going out just because he couldn't sleep that night. Verse 4 says, Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No, he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. It's been suggested that the fishing nets were cast on the left side of the boat to avoid getting them caught in the steering oar, which was on the right side. And it's interesting that the disciples, uh, at least some of them I mentioned, were fishermen by trade, Listen to this stranger, they weren't sure who it was, and cast the net on the right side of the boat. They do, and they get an amazing catch. And we're not told if Peter remembered the previous time when Jesus filled the nets. Uh, and we know that the sons of Zebedee were there the first time, too, James and John. Uh, But here, we see the other John, the one who wrote the Gospel of John, uh, the one whose quote is being the one whom Jesus loved. He's the one who connects this miraculous catch to Jesus. In verse 7, we read, The disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, that's why I'm linking, making that connection, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, He put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came into the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. So Peter forgets about the fish and jumps out of the boat to go see Jesus. And the others are probably wondering, there he goes again, chasing Jesus, leaving us to do all the work and bring the fish in. And it would have been hard work wading to shore with his outer garment on. We don't know if Peter was still feeling guilty about the fact that he had denied Jesus, not that much before that, but we do see that his relationship with Jesus was restored, and I would suggest it was strengthened. Verse 9 says, When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. While some suggest that the number of 153 has symbolic meaning, or should be looked at symbolically, I think it's likely that this was just simply the fishermen counting up the number of fish, as they always did, so that they could distribute them and get them to market. Recall that it was common for fish to be caught at night and then sold in the morning. And it's also worth noting that despite this huge catch, the net wasn't torn. And some would say, you know, that itself was a miracle. So they get to shore and Jesus has a charcoal fire going. Jesus was up early waiting for the disciples to finish their work. He took the time to make fire. He took the time to get breakfast going. I don't think he just looked and made it appear. I think he did the work. I'm sure he did the work. And Jesus also had the disciples bring some of the fish that they had caught. So even though Jesus ultimately provided the meal, the disciples still had to do their part. And while we don't, didn't, don't read more of the account in John's Gospel, Jesus then goes on to ask Peter about his love for himself, that's Jesus, and gives Peter instructions on caring for his sheep, for following him, and lets him, gives him a hint as to what's going to happen to him in the future. So a few notable points or observations from what we've read. When Jesus filled the nets with fish the first time, Peter fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, depart, me, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Fishermen generally made a decent living in Jesus' time. The Father's occupation usually determined what the Son did for a living. When Jesus said, Come, follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people, what did the disciples do? They responded by leaving Uh, the fish leaving the boats and following Jesus. And they left their livelihood behind. And I'm sure Zebedee uh, and his sons had some interesting discussions afterwards when they left him behind at the the boat. The disciples were experienced fishermen. They knew what they were doing, yet they listened to what Jesus told them and obeyed, even if they probably were thinking, well, Why would I do that? Master, we toiled all night and we caught nothing, but because you said so. Even though disciples were so close to Jesus, remember, they ate together, they listened to him speak, and even when he spoke to people, he gave them additional information, for example, how he explained the parable of the sower to them. They saw his miracles. Some of them saw him transfigured. Yet, They still didn't fully understand who he was and what he was telling them until he was crucified. He died, he was buried, and he was resurrected. We have the benefit of hindsight, don't we? We have his word, we have his Holy Spirit to guide us, yet I'm pretty sure we don't always get it right at times either. Jesus provided for his disciples. We saw how he filled their nets twice, and how he provided the temple tax for himself and for Peter, and even started preparing breakfast for them in that last passage we read. Jesus did, however, expect his disciples to do their part in the work. I don't think he told them to bring some of the fish they caught just so that they could admire them while they ate breakfast. Theirs was a simple meal, especially when you compare it to The breakfast buffets I'm sure all of us have seen at some point or another, but it met the need. Even though they struggled at times, the disciples committed their lives to following Jesus and did so right to the end. Peter, who denied Jesus soon after saying he would die for him, stood up and defended him, at times in front of very hostile audiences. Peter and John wrote some of the books that we have in our New Testament. And although these stories have emphasis on fish, as I mentioned earlier, it's really about the people, isn't it? The miracles provided proof that Jesus was the Messiah, the one the people had been looking for. The real catch, so to speak, was and still is the people who choose to follow him, the people who trust in him as their Savior and their Lord. So what does this mean for us? In the first passage we looked at, Jesus told Peter to go to the deep water and let down the net. In the second, he simply told Peter to go out and cast a line and take the first fish. In the third, he told the disciples to cast the net on the right side of the boat. The master of the sea knew where the fish were. We sang about him being omniscient, on all knowing his mercy is more. and Indeed, he is. And his mercy is. I'm sure Jesus also knew, not only where the fish were, but he knew what was in Peter's heart. He knew that Peter was a sinful man. And Just as Peter acknowledged his sinfulness, so must we. All of us are sinful, and Jesus knows what's in our hearts. We all need a Savior. And the Bible is perfectly clear that there's only one, and that is Jesus Christ. There's no other way that we can be saved. Nor is there any person, nor is there any other person who can save us. It's only Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Although we've read and talked about... Oh, sorry. Sorry. Jesus still invites people to follow him today, still invites them to be his disciples. And we have a choice in that decision. I pray all who are listening will choose to follow Jesus. If you've never decided to accept Jesus as your Savior and Lord, or if it doesn't make any sense, I'd be more than happy to talk to you answer any questions you have. And if there is somebody who hasn't yet done so, I pray that this would be the day that they come to know Jesus. While some may feel called to, most people won't do what the disciples did and leave their professions when they make a commitment to follow Jesus. The body of Christ has many parts, and we all have different roles and different ways that we contribute to it. Having Christians in all walks of life also helps get the gospel to a broader audience. While each Christian is given different spiritual gifts, for example, a supernatural ability for evangelism, teaching, giving, helps, and so on, we are all expected to share the gospel. We all have our own story that's unique just to us. So somebody that... God is nudging you to pray for, to speak to. And just as disciples may have wondered about things that Jesus said to do in terms of instructions, we may be asked to do something that makes us step back and say, That's not how I would do it. Or, I can't do that. God, are you sure? Following God involves listening for his instructions, trusting him, and doing what he tells us. It may require a relatively small tweak in our priorities, or it might require a significant change in our lives. Being a disciple doesn't make us perfect, does it? Christians are saved. We aren't perfect. We know the disciples didn't always understand what Jesus was telling them. They had questions. Who was that man that even the wind and the waves obey him? They got caught up in things of the world. Lord, can one of the sons sit on the right side, your right side, other son on your left in the kingdom of heaven? There seemed to be a little—I don't know—maybe I'm reading something in it. Seemed to be a little competition, one-upmanship at times. Two of them race to the tomb; one gets there first. Peter denied Jesus three times when he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and yet we see him being there for Peter after his resurrection. Thankfully, God's love for us isn't predicated on us being perfect. He's with us in the ups, and he's with us in the downs. When something happens with our families, or our friends, careers, our finances, our health, when our plans get derailed, when we mess things up, when our nets come up empty, Jesus is still there for us. In Matthew 11, Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Our sovereign God knows what's best. He wants us to listen for his direction and to trust him enough to follow his leading. Our names may appear on the deed to a house or ownership for a car or a sled or a multitude of other things. But the reality is, as James said, that every good and perfect gift comes from above. It all comes from God. And we are simply stewards of what he's entrusted to us. And uh, my note says, well, I didn't check. I did check with him uh, beforehand. And I'm going to quote Stan, who often has said, the Lord meets my needs, not my greeds. Just as Jesus expected the disciples to do their part in the fishing We, who are able, need to participate in supporting ourselves. We can't just sit back and expect everybody else to provide for our needs if we're capable of doing so ourselves. The disciples were committed to following Jesus, and they finished strong. That should be our goal as well. Earlier we sang, yet not I, but the Christ in me. And I was just reflecting on the words in verse 4. All the words, but uh, I'm going to repeat the words from verse 4. With every breath, I long to follow Jesus, for he has said that he will bring me home. He's going to bring all of us home. None are lost who belong to him. And day by day, I know he will renew me until I stand with joy before the throne. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. All the glory be evermore to him. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. If you follow the church calendar, we're in the season that's known as Lent. It's a season where people take extra time to reflect on God's grace, on what Jesus did His death, his burial, and his resurrection. And kind of look to see, well, what can I change in my life to be more like Christ? And, you know, in a few weeks, we'll be just spending more time looking specifically at those two events his death and his resurrection. The Apostle Paul noted that. If Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then our faith is futile. If Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, we only have hope for this life. And if that's the case, we are of all people most to be pitied. The reality is that Jesus was raised from the dead. He, he was resurrected. The greatest miracle of all. Our Savior is alive and sits at the right hand of God the Father and intercedes for us even now. Isn't that amazing? Our trust, our commitment, our hope extends to eternity. So folks, time to go fishing.
0: Heavenly Father, we thank you. In the name of your Son, we have called upon the name of Jesus. And you have heard us. We have said, like Peter, we are a sinful people. We are sinful. But we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have called us to yourself. Your blood has forgiven all our sin, past, present, and yes, future. And Lord, we thank you that as we go from this place, we can go as your fishermen, your holy fishermen, Mm -hmm seeking the lost that you have called to yourself. We marvel at your grace and allowing us to be partners with you. And so, Lord, we pray that you'll bless us as we separate. Help us not just to be hearers of the word, but doers. A poem that reflects your grace. Thank you again and bless us as we separate. In Jesus' name, amen.